This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based Think Tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with the Pledge Radio in Michigan and Lancer Broadcasting. I'm Jolan Asami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. You can subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. We thank you for tuning into America's Roundtable. We thank each one of you, our engaged listening audience via the Pledge Radio in Michigan, Lancer Broadcasting in the Midwest for joining us on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. Today, we're truly honored to have an extraordinary principal leader join us on America's Roundtable, Dr. Ben Carson, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Welcome, Secretary Carson. Welcome, Secretary Carson. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Secretary Carson, uh, the Opportunities Zones incentive created by the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was designed to spur economic development and job creation by encouraging long-term investments, public and private, in low-income communities nationwide. Since passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we have seen Opportunity Zone investments in housing, grocery stores, energy, retail establishments, agriculture, entertainment, technology, farming and more. Many of these investments are uniquely tailored to fit the needs and potential of particular communities. The qualified opportunity funds that have emerged throughout the country are the backbone of the Opportunity Zones initiative. Uh, Secretary Carson, could you kindly share with us about this unique initiative which you have been spearheading and some of the best practices that have emerged from the Opportunity Zones Incentives Initiative, which is affecting nearly 35 million of our fellow Americans in the more than 8,700 Opportunity Zones across the country. Well, uh, thank you for asking. You know, this has been a very unique uh, program. There have been other programs in the past where people could come in and do something, uh, reap the benefits, and then depart. Uh, but this really incentivizes people for long-term commitment. Uh, your initial investment has to be in there for five years, for instance, before uh, you get the, the first big benefit, which is a 10% reduction in the capital gains tax owed on the initial investment. These initial investments tend to be, you know, things that where the capital gains have not been realized yet. So if you leave it in for seven years, you get 15% reduction. And if you leave it in for 10 years, you don't have to pay any capital gains tax on the new money that was realized as a result of the investment. So it's a very significant inducement. But the other big factor here is, uh, people are not going to come back in five, seven, or ten years to check on their investment. They're going to obviously be involved the whole time because they want to get the best return on their investment. So that's one of the things that really makes this very unique. And, and we've seen people come up with all kinds of ideas. Uh, one of the unique ones that I saw in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, was a uh, multi-purpose uh, development uh, that concentrated on people with Down syndrome uh, to make them independent with jobs and training as well as with the living facilities. Uh, so really the imagination is what uh, is the only limiting factor. 
and we actually uh, did a best practices report uh, which was uh, submitted uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, you can see that on opportunityzones.gov along with the uh, one-year report to the president, uh, which outlines uh, a lot of the things that were done. There's been t over 273 separate actions that have been taken uh, by the various uh, agencies. You know, there's 17 uh, federal agencies and federal state uh, partnerships involved in this. So it is a very widespread effort and is uh, resulting in some uh, fabulous things. It, that's great to hear. And uh, you stressed earlier as well that uh, the Opportunity Zones initiative is not a top-down government program from Washington, but an incentive to spur private and public investment in America's underserved communities. And this may have a significant impact now, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, that's absolutely true. And in fact, uh, the president asked the council to redirect a lot of its energy uh, to the underserved communities that were particularly hard hit by the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and we find particularly the African-American community and Hispanic community had a lot of mortality and excess morbidity associated with the existence of comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, asthma, uh, obesity, all of these things tremendously increase the risk. So it, it was a matter of not just looking at those entities and finding ways to get them treated through the more than 13,000 uh, federally qualified health centers, but going to the next layer beneath and saying, why do they have more of these things and what can be done about that? And that refocuses your attention on things like housing, adequate housing, so that you can space people uh, in a situation like this. Adequate jobs, uh, so that people don't necessarily have to have the kind of jobs that expose them to the greatest danger. Various transportation issues, food and nutritional food. Um, education is probably the biggest factor. Uh, because it really doesn't matter where a person came from. It can be the worst part of the ghetto. It can be Appalachia. It can be some remote rural uh, area. If you give them a good education in this country, they write their own ticket. They're not going to find themselves in those horrible situations. So we really need to concentrate much more on that, and uh, we are focusing on that. Secretary Carson, we commend the leadership of President Trump, you, and your esteemed colleagues on the cabinet for swiftly and prudently addressing one of the greatest challenges in a century for America and the world, the coronavirus pandemic which originated in Wuhan, China. President Trump and administration officials have led strategic efforts with state, local, and tribal leaders, educators, and families to discuss the vital efforts to safely and prudently reopen schools 
for the over 50 million students across America. However, Secretary Carson, in certain states, there are governors and mayors who are opposing all efforts to reopen school and keeping it virtual, which will, we believe, marginalize a great number of students who are already impacted by the digital divide. Secretary Carson, what are the steps that the administration is taking that will provide the vital support and assistance needed to ensure that K-12 through students continue to learn while mitigating the spread of the coronavirus? And what is your message to parents and teachers across America? Well, you know, if we don't have well and a well-educated populace, uh, we're going to suffer the consequences of that. And uh, school is obviously extraordinarily important. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is we really need to follow the science on this. Science tells us that ch school-age children are very unlikely uh, to suffer significant consequences even if they become infected with the virus. And, uh, you know, when you look at some of the things that happen to students who are not in school, uh, some of the psychological and social issues that impact them in a very negative way, it becomes a much easier choice. They definitely need to be in school. It's a lot less risky for them to be in school than for them to not be in school. And also we have to pay attention to uh, those who are in a lower socioeconomic uh, status. They don't necessarily have access to broadband or to computers, and uh, that's the case in 42%, for instance, of African-American children. And uh, so you, you already have some disparities, and you're just magnifying them uh, by keeping them out of school and uh, exposed to the kind of learning and, and social discipline that comes with that. So again, I would just emphasize, if we look at the data and we see that, you know, when it comes to, to deaths from coronavirus, you know, 99 plus percent of them are in adults, not in school children. And uh, if we follow the precautions, the things that we've learned about this, you know, the mask wearing, appropriate social distancing, uh, hand washing, we take those appropriate precautions, we'll be fine. And the teachers who are elderly and uh, may be suffering from some of the comorbidities, uh, we can allow them to engage in distal teaching. They don't have to be there in that environment. So you know, it's a matter of just using our brains a little bit. That's why we have these complex brains, so that we can, you know, we can organize risk, we can, we can categorize risk, we can rank risk, and then we can act accordingly. Secretary Carson, Germany had the same debate as to the role children may play in spreading the virus to vulnerable adults at home as well as to older teachers and school staff. Yet Germany began reopening schools in May. The study by the University Hospital in Dresden, which was the largest study conducted in Germany on school children and teachers, analyzed blood samples from almost 2,000 children and teachers from 13 schools in May and June. After this study, Reinhard Berner, a professor of pediatrics, concluded, I quote, children may even act as a break on infection, unquote, and said 
that infections in schools had not led to an outbreak, while the spread of the virus within households was also less dynamic than previously thought. I think that we can learn from these tests conducted in Germany and rely on science, as you kindly shared, when reopening schools in America. What are your thoughts, Secretary Carson? Yes, we can learn from it if we're willing to accept the science. There's a lot of people who don't seem to be willing to accept the science if it doesn't agree with their political views, unfortunately. And sometimes the children are the ones who suffer the consequences of that. So, you know, we we have to be able to extract this from the political arena and think about the children themselves and what is good for the children and what is good for our society and throw all the political garbage out. Correct. And you mentioned uh, in one of your interviews, we should control the virus and not the virus to control us. Exactly. And, you know, we've learned an enormous amount about this virus uh, over the last uh, several months, and we can control it. Uh, you know, the, you, you look at the death rates. The death rates have uh, dramatically declined. And that's because we've learned a lot more about how to treat this. And uh, there are some uh, very interesting things coming down the pike here, both in terms of vaccinations and in terms of actual treatments to the virus itself, uh, which will certainly mitigate the effect of the virus as well. Thank you, Secretary Carson, for joining us on America's Roundtable. We appreciate your leadership in serving America, and uh, thank you for the tremendous work that you're doing, especially in such a time as this. And uh, we also want to thank you on behalf of America's Roundtable and our efforts in Jerusalem and International Leaders Summit for your great support in 2015 uh, for our Jerusalem Leaders Summit endeavors. Thank you, Secretary Carson. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Take care. Have a good day. According to an article in Science Magazine titled, School Openings Across Globe Suggest Ways to Keep Coronavirus at Bay Despite Outbreaks. I quote, Schools adopted a pod model as a compromise. Denmark, the first country in Europe to reopen schools, assigned children to small groups that could congregate at recess. It also found creative ways to give those groups as much space and fresh air as possible. Even teaching classes uh, outdoors. Some classes in Belgium met in churches to keep students spread out. Finland has kept normal class sizes, but prevents classes from mixing with one another. It further states, early data from European countries suggests the risk to the wider community is small, at least when local infection rates are low. Opening schools with some precautions does not seem to cause a significant jump in infections elsewhere, unquote. For America, teachers can apply the best practices offered by those who have done it successfully, and by using proper precautions, we can ensure that we do not leave any child behind during this pandemic. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. is an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit. I'm Joe Arasami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit.